our devices are listening to us. Previous generations of audio technology transmitted, recorded or manipulated sound. Today are digital voice assistants, smart speakers and a growing range of related technologies are increasingly able to analyze and respond to it as well. Scientists and engineers increasingly refer to this as machine listening, though the first widespread use of the term was in computer music. Machine listening is much more than just a new scientific discipline or vein of technical innovation however. It is also an emergent field of knowledge power, of data extraction and colonialism, of capital accumulation, automation and control. It demands critical and artistic attention. Yolandi Stringers and Jenny Kennedy provide a reboot manifesto in their book The Smart Wife, Why Siri, Alexa, and other smart home devices need a feminist reboot, which lays out their proposals for improving the design and social effects of digital voice assistants, social robots, sex robots, and other AI arriving in the home. They talk to artist Sean Docray, legal scholar James Parker, and curator Joel Stern about their research surrounding the book. Thanks so much um, for taking the time to speak with us today. I mean, I, I just wondered if maybe you felt like introducing yourselves in whatever terms um, feel right. So I'm Yolandi Strangers. I, I, would, I would describe myself as a digital sociologist. I've sort of pivoted away from, you know, the cause, the core social science disciplines in recent years and have now embedded myself in a faculty of IT. Uh, and very much sort of working in a human-computer interaction design space as well. Um, so I consider myself quite interdisciplinary as a, as a scholar. So I am Jenny Kennedy and I'm a research fellow at RMIT. I am in the School of Media and Communications. I would call myself a media and communications scholar. <laughs> I um, have... Oh, I don't know how to. I always get, it's weird, isn't it? I always get really confused on how to describe myself because media and communications doesn't often, it's often really broad. It doesn't say enough about what we are interested in. Um, I think when you say like I'm a digital sociologist, there's something already descriptive in that in terms of you're interested in the, you know, the sociality of digital devices and media and data and how we engage with them all the time, whereas media and communications can be, it can be the industry, it can be production, or it can be the type of thing I'm the most interested in, which is how we live with these devices that we have come to um, just take for granted in our lives and put them under this massive bucket of media and communications from, you know, the, the laptops we browse on, the phones we have in our pockets, and now the smart speakers that we bring into our homes as well. And, and how is it that you ended up working together um, as a digital sociologist and a media and communications scholar? I mean, and, and specifically on, on this idea of the, and, you know, writing this book together um, on this idea of the, the smart wife. We met at a conference. Um, I was already, I think, aware of Yolandi's work and we were um, scheduled to be in the same, in the panel together. And our work was very complimentary. We were both presenting on work that had been a longitudinal study of 
of device take-ups in the home from different angles. We had different um, objectives in the projects we were doing, but the work we were presenting was both very much about how the kind of work that goes into operating devices in the home is divided up amongst individuals within the home and finding that that was very gendered. And so we started talking about the similarities of our work from like our interest in that from our work, thinking this was something we could do to combine the projects and see where it would go. And that very quickly snowballed into this fascination with this feminized um, agent in the home. And Yolandi already had a very keen idea to write a book about it. And I got very easily roped in. I think I was required to write a book about it because um, the research I was doing was part of my DECRA and on the smart home. And, um, you know, as part of as part of that project, I had agreed to write a book. So, but the book I thought I was going to write was not the book that Jenny and I ended up writing um, because that project was actually more about sustainability and energy effects of smart technologies. But the gender angle was just so big and you know, it wasn't something that either Jenny or I had expected so it wasn't the focus of either of our projects which made it even the more striking to you know for it to kind of stand out without us even having been looking for it um, and then to kind of consider the broader implications of this gendered figure coming into the home and also all these different gendered interactions with these agents there was so much to explore and it seemed so significant at the time that it wasn't being discussed, you know, at the level or the you know, in the depth that it really should be because, you know, these devices are near ubiquitous now. The uptake of them, particularly of digital voice assistants, as you would know, you know, it's, it's, I think it has or is about to surpass the smartphone, which is, which is really, you know, that is quite significant when you think about the number of these feminised devices and, you know, coming into our homes and the scale and the pace without critical attention to what they're, what they're doing uh, and how they're impacting and, and affecting our lives. Um, could, could you sort of talk about the moment where, where you decided to call these feminised devo- devices smart wives, you, you know, and, and how you arrived at that um, formulation and, 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 and maybe just sort of, you know, introduce the idea of, of what is a smart wife, um, where, where does she come from and, 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 you know, what does she do? <laughs> Well, we're not the first people to come up with the term. There have been other uh, digital scholars and um, media scholars who have associated the smart home with a type of wifely figure. And in that smart home research that I was working on with another colleague, Larissa Nichols, we were talking about these devices as a type of wife replacement. And so the smart wife was sort of a logical extension from that, but a much broader extension because the way Jenny and I started to conceptualise it, it wasn't just related to the digital voice assistant and some of the other kind of devices, typical appliances in the home that were doing those kind of the gendered labour of the vacuuming or the, you know, the remembering the shopping list on the fridge from the smart fridge, that kind of thing. We sort of took it out a lot further and started to think about how pretty much any device you can think of that's coming into the home, robotic, AI or um, smart, is taking up these traditional and stereotypical wifely labours. And that's that's why we sort of decided to use this broad category of the term smart wife to to refer to all of this this broad collection across a number of different spectrums and a number of different roles 
of what a traditional wife was expected to do. Maybe it's worth um, actually recapitulating some of what those those ideas of what the traditional wife uh, means and what the traditional wife is expected to do. Sure. Um, I guess, I mean, we did a fair amount of research into the history of the wife that I'm sure you're familiar when you do when you start on a project, you're not entirely sure what's going to actually end up in the end product project. And, you know, the, the history of the wife is is fascinating in and of itself in terms of, um, you know, her an object of patriarchy, of malpossession, without autonomy often, um, without rights. And so we were looking at that very long history of, um, of the wife and its problematic um, political history alongside all these, the archetypal ideals of the wife and especially the ones that came to prominence in the 50s the 1950s housewife as being one who um, the home was her ideal domain. The home was also now this, it was this privatised space before the home had often been a site of both privacy and production, but then the home had become very much about about the private space and the home, the source of the nuclear family. And so that was where the wife was located and it was her role to maintain the home but also to provide any form of care to the family and especially to her husband. The ways in which this 1950s housewife was portrayed was just so beguiling often. And to the point where she's never actually left popular consciousness. And we've even found that this ideal 1950s housewife is not only still present in our popular media, in our TV shows, in our movies, but she also comes up in discussions from creators of smart home technologies and robotics. We just can't get away from this ideal that I don't think anyone ever truly lived up to. I just wanted to add to that. I mean, the other, the flip side of that in terms of the wives we were exploring the book is the contemporary wife in gender progressive societies. And we were very much inspired by Annabelle Crabb's work on the wife drought and uh, how uh, women in, you know, in Australia and in other, you know, similar kind of kinds of countries have, um, want wives, you know, because the wife is such a critical, has been, has, you know, continues to play such a critical role in holding the whole family together. And and so the smart wife is, I guess, a market opportunity to put it <laughs> quite functionally in the sense that she's responding to this, this drought in contemporary societies of this woman that was available to do all the things that Jenny just said. Uh, and obviously wives still exist, but they don't typically... Uh, have the time or ability to do all those roles that they traditionally performed, which provides an opportunity for technology to step in and potentially do some of that that work for us. The other thing just to mention about the wife is that we did also structure the book around the roles of the wife. So um, I'm sure if you picked up on this, but we we go through four domains of wifely labours in the home. So we look at housekeeping, um, caring and emotional labour, and then we look at homemaking and finally sexual labour. 
And so we, we kind of actually look at all the technologies that are stepping in to the home to do one or more of those things as well, which is another kind of way in which we bring the life into our discussion. I think there's one other thing to add to that as well, which is the history of the wife that is most dominant is a white middle-class wife. The history of non-white, non-middle-class wives is often very much missing from our social histories. And that's one of the, the other, I guess, aspects of the smart wife is this idea of who gets to, one, who gets to have a wife, but who gets to have a smart wife. There are also inequalities in terms of the types of households that typically have the disposable income to incorporate these technologies into their homes. So is the smart wife a technology or an idea or an ideology or, you know, because I'm thinking about the, the, the really prominent role of cultural representations of the smart wife in your book, um, you know, from, oh, I can't remember the name of the one in the Jetsons, but um, yeah, Rosie, yeah, the, you know, sort of really iconic um I don't know, even if it's an early portrayal, but it's a lot earlier than contemporary ones anyway. But, you know, in, in so many films and media, you know, there's a fantasy of the smart wife that seems to be driving so much of so many of these products, which are rubbish comparatively. You know, the smart wives that we actually get are not very smart. So so what kind of a thing is the smart wife? Is it, you know, is is it a technology um is it a is an ideology is it some kind of hybrid um, how would you describe it as an object of analysis or politics i like the idea of the smart wife being an ideology i think that's it, how we described her I, yeah. I think it was more that she was a um an ideal much like the 1950s housewife wife was an ideal in many representations across culture and also across technology uh, as evidenced by robots like Rosie the Maid, but also in actual real-life robots that were designed in her image or to perform roles that she did. So I think she's she can be also a technology, and certainly we argue that in the book as well. It's not maybe, maybe it's not that she's one thing or the other, but that she's something that the industry and culture is aspiring towards, as well as a physical representation coming about and being manifested in, in various ways. So I wonder if we could direct the conversation a little bit towards digital voice assistants, smart speakers and so on. You know, that's, that's you know, the, the motivation on our end for wanting to speak with you. I mean, on one level, I'm cautious about kind of, you know, emphasizing listening and voice too much because, you know, listening and voice are always embedded in other histories, you know, so the, the history of a digital voice assistant is not just in the voice and in the, you know, the listening. So that's really important. But I, I wonder if you could say something about, you know, what happens with the turn to the voice user interface? Like, um, you know, could, could you maybe say something specific about the gender politics of digital voice assistants like Siri and Alexa and others? Um, could you say, is it that the digital voice assistant sort of is a key moment in the history of the smart wife or that it, you know, proliferates it or is it just one amongst many others and many other figures? Um, you know, how, how important uh, is the digital voice assistant and can you say something about its specific gender politics? 
I think the the introduction of digital voice assistance is a significant moment in terms of human machine interaction in the sense of the swift uptake of these assistants, especially through devices that people were already familiar with. So the introduction of Siri through an iPhone that already has significant uptake paves the way for other forms of voice assistance to come into the home. Then you have the decision made by, um, by the, um, the organisations that produce these assistants to code them in ways that they are going to be most recognisable as female. And I think that that is, I mean, we talk also in the book about why, why that, those decisions might be made around our, um, how we have been socialised to expect a supportive voice to be female, how we're more comfortable with female voices. But it's still there was still a decision being made to make these assistants have a female voice and or a female name. One of the things I wanted to add there was that what I think is really pivotal about the voice assistant is its its role in proliferating uh, not only itself, so not only digital voice assistants, but acting as a gateway technology for voice-enabled devices and robots of many different forms and feminising them. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing now the voice of Alexa and Google Home embedded in products that extend beyond their own range, their own their own cylinders, and you know, empowering or being used to power a variety of other appliances and robots in the home as well. But also the technology that has enabled voice assistance is being now embedded into other forms of assistance uh, or other forms of robots, like the sex robots that we explore in the book. There's actually a lot of similarities in the the voice um, software and the voice. Uh, activation that's now being included in these other types of feminized devices as well so they seem to be this kind of linchpin in bringing about a mass feminization of so many different types of ai and robotics not just you know contained within their specific kind of niche markets where they started could, could i ask sort of a follow-up on on this idea of feminization in this context you know is the feminization the labor or the vocal character of the the device like you know obviously there's been pushes towards um gender neutral voice assistants or or just having the ability to choose a voice of your own but is that what's really i mean how you know how much of a part of the story is the the voice of the voice assistant yeah. in terms of feminization it's just the voice the feminized voice is just one aspect or layer of the feminization of these kinds of voice assistants. The other significant aspect that has been feminized is the types of care and the types of work these devices are put towards doing uh, because they are often performing forms of care and roles that are are linked to uh, idealized as feminized in society um, but also are typically undervalued as well. And then the other aspect to it as well is their uh, feminised personalities. As Jenny's saying, you know, it cuts across so many layers. It definitely goes far beyond the voice and actually that's something we address 
extensively in in the book is while we're sympathetic to making these devices gender neutral and to you know removing you know or changing the voice or switching the gender of the voice we don't think that completely completely solves the problem because of the roles these devices are intended to perform and also because of the feminized personalities that they have we don't see a diversity of feminine attributes or feminine personalities on display. We see a very uniform type of femininity being put on show here. And that's another thing that concerns us because it's it's a, the kind of femininity that is compliant, that is friendly, that is likable, that is, you know, ready to serve and please. Uh, and of course, there's many other types of femininity and, and many would argue as we do, that that's actually quite an outdated idea of what, you know, women how women should be um, uniformly behaving in society in today's age. So there are many problems with the devices that extend beyond the voice. Um, I don't know if it's too, too much of a digression, but uh, in the way that you were describing this history of the wife leading into the smart wife, uh, and it reminded me of this kind of, you know, informal, longstanding kind of uh, balance of power or agreement between corporations and the state where, you know, in order to reproduce labor power, the, the wife and the home become the kind of factory for uh, reproducing workers. And, um, and you kind of hinted at that with the, with the acknowledgement that, um, you know, women uh, have not been remunerated for that work that they've uh, historically done, particularly in that period from the 50s onwards. And in the smart wife, in these devices sort of taking on some of these care giving little aspects of, of caregiving, I guess that that shifts the relationship. But one thing it does is it turns uh, this uncompensated work into a service that we pay for. And I guess that what I'm wondering is what happens to, we still need that same work to happen, right? People still, there's still care that's given that's, that actually helps in like uh, allowing us to live and have an emotional life uh, and all of these kinds of things. And I don't think these devices are actually providing that even if they're stepping into that role. Um, and so what's happening to that like um, relationship between, I don't know, like what, what's the division of labor or something that's happening in the household now between the these devices, these smart wives and the actual um, uh, reproduction of labor power that happens in the home um no i think actually i think you're raising a really important point which is how these devices are part of larger capitalist structures that we bring into our homes and there are also already divisions of labor within the home that are problematic and bringing these devices in as a presumed um, solution to the conflicts around division of labor in the home they're not they're not being able to live up to that ideal and mostly it's because they're attempting to displace that labor rather than equalize it amongst the members of the household and what often at the moment happens is um, Annabel Crabb the book um, Ilandi mentioned earlier um, as Annabel Crabb talks about is that most of that care labor falls to women in the house when they're in a heterosexual household so by bringing devices in, it's not actually, it's not 
necessarily meaning that for the man and woman in the home that they now perform an equal amount of labor what often happens is and this is this is what came out of the research that Andy and I were doing that brought us together was that often when the when devices come into the home one person in the household takes on the kind of curating managing overseeing role becomes the tech expert if they're not already and they are the ones who set up the devices who maintain the devices and often especially when you have a complex household the, the operation of this interoperable system takes a fair amount of work so instead what you end up having having is instead of the care labors that are necessary to be done in the home being divided amongst everybody you now have an additional set of labors required in the home that is about the care of these devices and it's still not addressing the gap in terms of the intimate care labors that are required <laughs> i just i've just got this um this this figure of like the hi-fi guy in my head you know as i'm listening to you and it suddenly makes me think Oh, a smart speaker. It's another kind of hi-fi for hi-fi guy to, yeah. you know. That's to... it. That's it. Comple it's uh, what Jenny didn't say there is that that digital labour uh, that comes in with smart home technologies and networked devices, in our research at least and in other studies that we've seen as well, it, it's more commonly falling to men. And so that's interesting as well. It's, it's, a, it's actually it's quite an invisible labour in the sense that no stats on housework that we could find uh, currently track this labour. Mm. So, you know, we commonly we commonly know that women do the majority of, you know, typical housework in um, a heterosexual couple, but there's this new form of labour coming in with smart devices as well, which could potentially change that. One of the things we were concerned about there is that if, you know, men are taking up more time to, to kind of take care of the devices in the home, what does that mean for the other labour in the home that needs to get done, which has traditionally fallen to women? Because, again, you know, you haven't necessarily reduced the labour with the smart wife. You've potentially created more and changed the dynamic again in the home and possibly not in a more equal way. So <laughs> there's a whole lot of, you know, labour politics there to consider in terms of what these devices are meant to solve and what they may actually end up doing. Yeah, you've created another excuse for not doing the washing up. Anecdotally, I can confirm that that has happened precisely in, in, in my household and not, we're trying to work against it. But um, the amount of time that I've spent recently um, caring for the maintenance of the devices that I've brought into the home, which sort of stop functioning and then kind of ha have to be, you know, repaired and, and, and sort of, yeah, it's a, it's a disaster and has produced a lot more unnecessary labour and not necessarily equalised. It makes me think of another figure in your book, um, Resource Man. And I was wondering, actually, because the voice assistant in your book is um, where you sort of pivot towards, you know, Amazon and the destruction of planetary systems, you know, capitalist extractivism and so on. And you have a whole section in the book there on ecofeminism and the relationship between that discourse and and the smart wife so perhaps if there's a way of drawing out you know link, linking those stories together um that would be great well yeah resource man is is similar to the digital housekeeping we were talking about in the sense that uh and this comes from my energy work with other colleagues and 
what we were finding in that work is that there's again typically one person and typically a man in heterosexual households who takes up the labor of sort of managing energy systems if they have you know solar panels or uh, energy feedback and monitoring systems or batteries or you know kind of some of the more high-tech energy technology that's now coming into homes automated systems stuff like that but their efforts were often in vain to try and save energy or use it more efficiently uh, because you know other members of the household more or less did what they want when they wanted and it was I guess the story of resource man is one of caution that you know just bringing smart technologies into the home doesn't guarantee that you're going to save energy. And in fact, uh, in some cases, it increases energy uh, because these devices require energy themselves or um, some automated systems, you know, allow you to do more than just save energy. They provide new conveniences and new, new lifestyle opportunities as well that actually increase consumption. Uh, and I guess that's part of a bigger story of a smart wife in that she is often entangled in these capitalist systems and the, the face or the voice of, you know, companies, huge, huge companies like e-commerce companies like Amazon, whose intention is to embed us in their markets and to sell people products. And most of the algorithms that these devices have are oriented towards those objectives. I mean, Google's objectives are slightly different. They're about, you know, their data company, but Amazon is is very much about e-commerce. Uh, and so, you know, the femininity there serves another purpose, the femininity of the devices, that is, which is to uh, make us comfortable with having a major corporation in our homes suggesting things that we should buy and should do. And obviously it's it's a relatively effective strategy, maybe some would say a very effective strategy, uh, but not necessarily good for the planet or for many marginalised people. And, and this was also a turning point for our arguments around gender equality in the book because, you know, Jenny and I were quite confronted with this. What we had, what we came to realise was that arguing for a sort of more feminist smart wife may only serve the interests of, of white feminists and, you know, women like ourselves, for example, whereas there are many other women and other marginalised people in the world who are sort of entangled up in these systems of labour and environmental extraction and environmental waste that these devices depend on, whose lives are unlikely to be served in any positive way by these systems expanding across the globe. So, um, yeah, it was a, a moment where we, we questioned whether the smart wife was actually a good idea for anyone at all. And how did you answer that question? <laughs> well, we, we, we said that it wasn't a good idea, uh, but that we recognised that, you know, two people writing a book about it was probably not going to stop, you know, five or six or probably more like 10 or 20 companies around the world from making these devices or from the millions and of consumers from buying them. So we, uh, we acknowledged that, it was not a good system as it currently stands. And then the remainder of the book is really focused on what we can do to improve it. It feels like that's a stance we sort of increasingly have to take. I mean, in our own thinking around machine listening more broadly, you know, it's a double bind where you have to say on some level, you know, I'm an abolitionist or a, or a Luddite of a certain, you know, more positive stripe than is often represented but that just can't be the only frontier of political action. 
I mean, I feel like it's possibly a little bit too early to get to the sort of the normative project of the book. Um, but you, you are quite explicit about it, you know, so um, the idea of producing a feminist smart wife is one of the horizons of the book, but you, you have like a whole number of sort of ways forward or routes forward out of this double bind that you, you mentioned. I wonder if it's just um, as a neat segue worth getting into some of them. Yeah, so we have we have nine proposals oh, we end on in our manifesto. Uh, not not ten. <laughs> well, we <laughs> that was an editing decision. <laughs> it makes it feel more authentic, you know. If it's nine, then then you really thought of them. If it's ten, then room for one more down the track. <laughs> um, and it's interesting that you you said they were quite specific. I mean, yes, they are, but they're also proposals that are things to build on. They're not like you know you must do this and you must do that. Their ideas, they're, um, they're meant to be inspirational. They're meant to sort of get people thinking about different angles of how we could sort of approach and explore this and, and improve the current situation. Yeah, and, and they, they, they all explore quite different aspects, really. Some of them about the design and how we, you know, we queer the smart wife, how we design a feminist smart wife. Others are about the industry and, and you know, what we do to get more women into um, coding and IT, but also how we actually change what the IT disciplines are and to bring more social sciences into the design of artificial intelligence and think about them as social projects not and social designs, not just technical ones. And then others are about how the devices are represented in the media and how they're also developed in science fiction and popular culture and how those provide inspiration for the roboticists and, and the versions that we see in our homes. So... We, we, I think they're quite far-ranging in terms of the, the areas that we go to and how we can improve the current situation. Could, could you say, for instance, what it, mean, what it might mean to queer the smart wife? To queer the smart wife, we're talking about trying to get away from the very narrow idea of femininity that the smart wife currently is portrayed within um, and to think more about what other forms of femininity there might be. So this idea of the smart wife always being softly spoken or polite or subservient, maybe she can be a little bit more boisterous or um, affirmative and can do so in ways that are still positively feminine. Whereas often what we come to do is attribute certain, um, associate certain attributes either negatively or positively with femininity. This also ties into this idea of we need to see smart wives, perhaps in like in popular culture or in devices that are, that are just giving us more range and that are not part of the current heterosexual construct of this subservient 1950s housewife and queering we do talk about queering femininity mainly but we also talk about queering more broadly in terms of you know all genders you know potentially being part of this this story and you know there is a part of the book where we look at a number of effeminate robots boy bots and also kind of more cartoon inspired or animal inspired robots as well but, again, they're quite 
similar in their cuteness and in their um, the form of femininity or effemininity that they mm. they portray. And so even there, we we think there's an opportunity to queer not just the forms that we're seeing, but also yeah the personalities. And it doesn't mean that they all have to be evil and destructive and rude. Uh, there, are, but there you know there are many different types of people that we interact with in our lives why is there only one type of personality repeated over and over again in the types of technologies we interact with mm, that's a great question earlier when you were when you were kind of talking about the, the the attempts to like sort of cement our relationship with with amazon i was thinking about the the ways in which the the devices kind of prepare the young generation to enter into the market and their relationship with these big services. And so I'm thinking obviously of children. And since we're like at this point in the conversation where we're thinking about ways forward, I just wanted to, to ask you to talk a little bit about the this relationship between children and the devices. You sort of mentioned that in the promotional material, you know, that they're often shown answering children questions. And yeah, that's clearly how they're, how they're sort of used. But uh, I was wondering if you could both talk about the relationship that children have to these devices and also imagine, reflect on whether actually some of these strategies that you're talking about, about possible ways forward, might be particularly relevant for for um, kids who are, I think are quite open to other ways of thinking and being and living. So, I think one, I mean, one of the things around the idea of children using these devices is that Children are very open to the possibilities of these devices. They are quick to assimilate them into their day-to-day lives. And they do so from the perspective they have as children, which is this is this is kind of a toy or something fun or something I can engage with. But what they don't have is the critical thinking around what type of ecosystem this device is part of and how their way of of engaging with it is actually forming a data profile on themselves that they are not yet able to take ownership of. So children engaging with with devices, listening and learning to speak to them. Um, So today my daughter managed to tell Google how to turn the TV on. I haven't explicitly told her the command on how to get the TV turned on, but she's been listening to me engaging with Google. And over time practicing, I was encouraging her to go outside and play. And she stormed off inside saying, I want to watch telly. And I stayed outside thinking, this is fine because she won't be able to turn it on. I've got my phone with me. But I came in 15 minutes later to her sitting very smugly on the sofa because she had given the command to Google and it had finally responded. So there's quick to become, children are quick to become familiar with these devices in their home when they see adults engaging with them too and see them as being potentially useful. But they're not fully aware of what they're engaging with. And also they're not yet familiar with what the limitations of what they're engaging with are. So they, you know, understanding that how it's connected into perhaps different devices or how the Google or Alexa that you're speaking to on your smart device is the same Google that you're using on your smartphone. 
for example. That's also something that we explore in the book is the research that shows how uh, children are um, less likely to be able to distinguish between a computer that's behaving like a human and a real human. So that was another concern of ours, is, or is another concern of ours, is, is how, you know, if children are, again, only seeing this one form of femininity and are, only, and are interacting with it on a regular basis, just as they are with other members of their household, what effect is that going to have on them in terms of how they perceive women? Because, you know, we're mostly engaging with these devices with the feminised feminized voice unless you actively choose to change it on some devices. Uh, and, yeah, what, that, what is that going to mean for the way that they then interact with, with other people? Uh, because if they're not making that distinction between machine and human, then it's all kind of one and the same learning process. Uh, so that's um, another issue that we raise. And children also, are they're seeing that the device will do what you have asked it to do regardless of how politely you ask it which is another crucial aspect of that not being able to differentiate between whether they're talking to a device or to a human. They're not learning the repercussions of inappropriate social interactions. Yeah, when my son tries to, he typically wants to get the phone to show him pictures of Paw Patrol. He just escalates, like when he doesn't understand, he just starts shouting at it. <laughs> I mean, that's probably, um, he probably gets that from other places too. But actually, but it makes me think um, of, so one of the things that, you know, we're interested in, in in terms of the politics of machine listening is both the politics of when machine listening works and the politics of when it doesn't work. And that's, a you know, there's a whole chapter in your book about this theme. You know, one of the problems with smart wives is, that they work too well and they offer too seductive a a figure of of domestic labor that you know normalizes and entrenches a sort of a regressive or uh, uh, idea of of womanhood uh, or domestic labor but another problem is that they stuff up all the time and it's not just um, um, miscomprehension but other things too and, and, and in the book you talk about provocatively bitches with glitches and I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on that idea what you think the politics are of, of failure of the smart wife. I think we're going to get t-shirts printed with the slogan bitches with glitches it seems to be a very popular <laughs> popular title. <laughs> Um, I think, in the form of capitalism. Yeah, yeah, why not? Um, I think the bitches with glitches, I think it brings together so many of the things that we're talking about, about this very limited idea of how feminized, this feminized idea of the smart wife should be behaving and how quickly we are to turn when it doesn't do what we expect it to do but also the way in which then we discuss that or talk about that. So it becomes very gendered, the language. We don't talk about a technology failing. We talk about a feminine entity failing and use gendered descriptive terms as to how that technology has faded. So there are, you know, one of the examples we talk about is a robotic device, Clio, who is an LG device who has a malfunction during a, um, a tech show. And instead of saying, you know, there was a malfunction and the device didn't respond, the device is, it said that the device was giving the male 
presenter, the silent treatment. It's the, you know, this kind of idea of, you know, this the wicked femininity, that it's not the technology that was the problem. It's the very kind of feminine essence of the technology that was the problem. So that's one aspect of Bitches with Glitches is the way in which any um, limitations of the technology is reframed as kind of this wicked femininity. But then the other aspect of the Bitches with Glitches is the way in which these technologies can provoke very gendered violence, basically, in terms of abusive language, insults, sexual comments, because their subservient personalities are not able to stand up against any kind of abuse. We liken that to um, the everyday sexism movement and other sort of similar campaigns that have called out, you know, gendered uh, abuse and small infringements, as Laura Bates, I think, calls it, uh, that are that are gendered and, and directed at women. And and, and make the link uh, in terms of, not obviously in terms of direct abuse to women, because obviously abuse is directed towards devices, but certainly feeding into that culture, that everyday sexism culture, which is, is very much gendered, and questioning what impact that might have then on broader society if we're, you know, en masse all going around and providing gendered comments that aren't very appropriate or friendly to our feminised devices. We're also concerned about the irony here, really, because the industries that these technologies are coming out from or of, they're male-dominated industries, you know, particularly at the frontiers of technology, we see, you know, the highest numbers of men. So it's actually men designing and programming these technologies mainly or on the whole. And yet when they go wrong, we're blaming the feminised technology which is, it is quite ironic really, but also kind of quite unfair when you think about it because women are essentially getting blamed for uh, something that is not, you know, the responsibility of that gender. And that, again, sort of is feeding into this culture of women being slightly imperfect and, and glitchy, whereas kind of diverting the attention away from the people who are designing and making these technologies. We also talk about how uh, in the media this is also... This, this also happens and we talk about headlines that actually uh, blame the devices and, and, you know, it has comic value and it's quite entertaining to say, oh, Siri needs to wash her mouth out with soap and water because, you know, she says all this racist, dirty stuff. But in a way that, again, just reinforces our point that it's sort of blaming this feminised entity or device rather than saying, well, the programmers who, you know, have created algorithms that are racist and sexist, they need to have a hard look at the technology they're designing. So it extends beyond the interactions in the home. It's also about the ways that we're discussing these devices in the media and in popular culture as well. I was really glad that you proposed um, sort of feminist coding and, and um, you know, women programmers as one of the reboots, as one of the sort of necessary reboots. And, and actually um, Girls Who Code, they... they located in the same um, building as, as Liquid Architecture, where, where I work in, in Collingwood, at Collingwood Art Precinct. Um, I was sort of wondering if I could ask a, a more sort of speculative question about where you sort of see this going in the coming years, whether you're kind of optimistic that this kind of feminist re- reboot of the voice assistant is possible and, um, you know, 
and also with relation to coding, uh, a voice assistant that has been programmed by girls, by women, for women or for, you know, but what what would it sound like? What would it do? And, you know, do, do you kind of think that we are um, likely to see um, that kind of thing happen soon? There's actually already a lot of inspirational work happening in this space in terms of how we might design more feminist or just better <laughs> devices and smart wives for our homes. And there's already, you know, a move in uh, the industry to hire anthropologists and sociologists and other social scientists and bring them into the design phase and, and really start to think about gender issues. So there is positive change happening, I think. But unfortunately, a lot of it's also quite superficial. And, you know, it's, it's about sort of just like we've been talking about neutralising the voice or changing the voice and saying, okay, we fixed the problem now, it's all, you know, let's not worry about the gender question anymore. Whereas the issues we're raising in the book go much further than that and in terms of looking at the personality of the devices we're bringing into homes and also the roles that they're intended to perform and how that in turn then changes and displaces and disrupts the um gendered labour that already exists in homes and society. So there are, there are many deeper layers to go is what I would say there. And I think uh, there are, as I said, a number of people who are starting to do that work and some great examples out there. In terms of what it would look like, well, hopefully it would be really diverse. I mean, that that's where we didn't put prescriptions in. It was, you know, that's where the whole concept of queering is about broadening and diversifying and moving beyond the very uniform types of products that we currently have on the market and experimenting and being playful and coming up with different personalities and ideas. I don't think it's that we need to design the one ultimate perfect smart wife. It's actually that we need, if this market's going to exist, you know, we need to diversify it, diversify the personalities and the genders and, you know, the forms that we're seeing in our homes and also the labours and the, the roles that they're intended to perform and also having a fairly serious think about whether they're a good idea <laughs> and if they are, are going to come in, you know, what other impacts they might be having. So it's quite a far-reaching set of questions and considerations, I think, in terms of how the industry moves forward here. And um, that's why we did put forward so many different proposals to kind of look at this from a number of different angles. I can just say that I fully concur with what Yolanda is saying. Um, I think that we are moving in the right direction and the fact that there is a market for this book is an indication that these are ideas that are starting we're not the only ones who are looking at the current smart home industry thinking something has to give here something has to change that there needs to be more diversity and we are seeing initiatives maybe not to the scale we want to see but I think the broader social currents happening in society right now indicate that this should get better. And I am an eternal optimist at heart. And I also agree in that we don't yet know what this looks like. And that's for a very good reason, because the hope is that it's not going to be one of the very few options we have available to us right now there's going to be more than one option. I sort of want to end on that optimistic note. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vegar for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. 
We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au